It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we took a deep dive into the use and regulation of stablecoins with Chad Cascarilla, the co-founder and CEO of Paxos, a regulated blockchain platform that has its own stablecoin. Paxos is working to replatform the financial system, arguing that all assets can exist on a blockchain. Chad thinks it's just a matter of time of bringing the financial system onto the technology that we have available today. And so we started by asking Chad why people should feel comfortable that stable coins are not a systemic threat and are really backed by what they say they are backed by. Well, um, it really does come down to what is the stable coin. And so they're not all created equal. Uh, our stablecoin is a little different from others because we're fully backed, we're fully audited, we're fully regulated. And so the token itself has been approved by a primary regulator, in this case, the New York Department of Financial Services. That's different from others. Uh, and of course, there's been a lot of uh, talk about Tether right. and other stablecoins. Um, are they a systemic risk? What could happen over time? And I think the point is, uh, the technology itself is unlocking a new way to be able to move money, which is really important and clearly has a lot of uh, interest and a lot of demand. Uh, but also at the same time, you want to have the right type of oversights. That's what Paxos has always done from the very beginning, which is be highly regulated, make sure that we can create the trust level that's needed to make this adoption happen right. at a mainstream level, not just for early adopters and maybe crypto enthusiasts. And so I think that's the shift that needs to happen here for the industry is how you build you know, industrial strength, institutional grade products. Chad, obviously it must give you a competitive edge, the fact that you've gone through this process, you've got regulated, you've got audited. Will that inherently happen to the others? Do you think this will weed out? Will eventually, will we see certain stable coins fade away? Why haven't more gone through that process, do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think, frankly, in some ways, being regulated in a, such an early stage is a hindrance. Uh, you know, you have to move slower, there's more oversight. Um, but on the other hand, our view has always been that how are you gonna change the financial system in the long term? How are you gonna change people's lives every single day? And you can't do that, in my opinion, if you're unregulated, if you're not trustworthy, if you're not built for mainstream adoption. And so I think it's hard in financial services to go back and ask for permission. Uh, you really have to have done in the very beginning. And, um, and so there's a real difference between building it the right way from the beginning and building it uh, with a backfill mentality. I think that can work in other industries, but in financial services, certainly one uh, that's highly regulated like financial services, that's not really, I think, the right approach to take. So and I think we're gonna see that over the next year or two because you have to move beyond the crypto early adopters. And that's what we've done. I think 
see some really big names come in, start to use this technology over the next six to 12 months. And it can really change the payment system and it can really change how consumers have access to financial services, which is important. Fundamentally, stable coins allow there to be a lot more inclusion. And I think that's probably one of the most important attributes of them. One, our own reporting at Bloomberg says that there are some regulators who are concerned about stable coins from, say, you know, the same things that people are worried about with other crypto, money laundering, terrorists, the inability to track it. There are mixers on the Internet. There are places where you could sort of deposit a stable coin, put them in a place, and you can't really track it. And then someone else picks it up, and it's very hard to follow the whole trail of payments. Is there going to be more, in your view, more coming to sort of get more aggressive or make it easier for regulators to track every little hop, skip, and a jump to know who's holding it at any given time? Or is it already sufficient, the regulation? Yeah, I think there's a couple of components to this, and you're, you're raising some really good points. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you looked at what's the number one currency that's used uh, for money laundering, it's physical U.S. dollars. Sure. Uh, now, that's not meant to be said in some type of cheeky way. I mean, that, that's the fact. Um, creating a, a stable coin um, is going to allow you to be able to understand each hop along the way. It's publicly available. Um, it's uh, not fully anonymous. It's what's called pseudo-anonymous. And the, the amounts that move are well known to everybody. And they're, by the way, fully auditable forever. And so we've seen this uh, create an ability for law enforcement to understand what's happening in a better way. But partly what needs to happen is the stable coin itself regulated. Mm. And so it's not enough just to be able to have auditability and to understand what's happening. You have to make sure that whoever is issuing these stable coins, and by the way, I think ideally that should be a central bank at some point in the future. But there's so much discovery that needs to happen that before you get to a central bank issuing it, you're going to want to see uh, the market be able to, to winnow out what works and what doesn't work. And I think being regulated is one of the things that's going to be proven to show what works. And that will then allow us to say, okay, how do we want to construct the right types of controls? Because ultimately, all these stable coins are on smart contracts. You can develop all types of controls in there. It's not like a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, where it's fully decentralized, fully open, nobody is overseeing it. There is an issuer of right. all stable coins. Now, we also got some more perspective on crypto and the recent volatility in the space with Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder and CEO of FTX, a cryptocurrency derivatives platform that is having a moment here in the U.S. While they probably aren't as well known as some of their competitors like, say, Coinbase, they have been getting their name out there, becoming the official crypto partner of Major League Baseball and getting the naming rights to the Miami Heat Stadium. We started by asking Sam what was behind the push and what he sees as the market opportunity for FTX. Totally. And I think, you know, the big context behind the push is uh, we're really proud of the products we've built. We've put a lot of work into them and, you know, think that they are, uh, you know, the best products in the space. Um, and we have a lot to offer to users. We're also one of the newest crypto exchanges and we have a lot less uh, name recognition uh, because of that. And so I think the biggest thing that we're looking to do um, is to get our name out there because, you know, we think people will will love our products if they try them, um, uh, but don't have that, that same uh, brand name. Mm. as at you know some of the other venues sam who are you interested in there for because it feels if you're going into stadiums into into yep. gaming it feels like it's a retail player but like an educated one who usually likes to game or, or gamble on on sports but i also know you've been interested in institutional you're like built by traders for yep. traders so who where's the sweet spot yeah it's a really good question and you know historically our, our biggest sweet spot has been the really highly engaged users the professional users um, you know, the people who think very hard about a platform they use. 
Um, and, you know, we've put a lot of our effort into trying to build the best institutional grade liquidity platform that, that we can in crypto. Um, but one of the things that means is that as we now start to look at the consumer demographic as well, um, we already have, uh, you know, a really well-built backend technology. Um, and that makes it pretty easy for us to roll out a lot of products on the consumer side um, because we have all of the backing that we need for them in terms of technology, in terms of products, liquidity, uh, and, and everything else. Um, and so it just makes it a much easier rollout on that side. And we're pretty excited to get involved in that game. Um, you know, it hasn't historically been uh, our biggest uh, source, but we think that there's a lot of room uh, to move that space forward as well. And, and so I think you're exactly right. This is, this is looking at a different demographic than what has been the largest users so far um, of FTX. Is that what you see is the big selling point, the sort of just the, the user experience every time there's stress or major volatility in the market or maybe a rival exchange, uh, people having trouble accessing it. You make a point on Twitter of talking about FTX is still up, we're still running. You make a point also about the sort of like changing liquidations policy versus others. Talk to us about what you see as the uh, FTX difference and why out of nowhere, because like a year and a half ago, no one had ever heard of you. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of this is a combination of features. I think you hit on some of them. One of them is uptime. We spent a ton of time working on our, our backend technology. And, you know, this often isn't present in the retail facing products. But when you put stress on the systems, all of a sudden it is. And if your technology isn't top end, um, you're going to have downtime even on your mobile app. Um, and, you know, we've had sort of industry leading uptime this year. That is one piece of it. Um, you know, uh, I think another thing is that, you know, we've rolled out a lot of cool products. Uh, many of them have been international so far. Um, and I think, you know, on the international site, we have a lot of pretty unique experiences for people, you know, with the world's second most liquid Trump 2020 contract, uh, for instance, uh, which trade, you know, a few hundred million dollars on election night. But, you know, in the United States, we have our eyes on a lot of really cool features uh, that we're hoping to roll out over the next year that we think will, will really sort of set um, set us apart, not just in terms of the stability and experience, but in terms of the, the, the breadth of offerings. What's been sort of attracting attention to FTX has been the way that you've been able to be so nimble, Sam, be able to like say, oh, you want lumber? Here, I'll give you lumber. The ability to sort of hear what your customers yep. want and have fun with it. As you get bigger, as you raise more money, as institutional clients not only become your clients, but also fund you, do you worry that that will kind of fall away a little bit, that you have to become more quote unquote professional? It's a really good question. No, um, I do think that we're gonna get a lot of pressure to. Um, and, you know, I think that we want to be professional in the ways that matter and the ways that, that are, are meaningful. And I think we try really hard to treat our customers well and with respect um, and to build institutional grade tools. Um, you know, what I think we're gonna re kind of, you know, really refuse the pressure to do is to have massive sprawling growth in employee base in a way which is sort of chaotic and and you know reduces our ability to operate well. And you know we would love to be way bigger than we are in terms of workforce. Uh, we have we have demand for it. Um, but you know and we're growing. We, you know we've tripled this year so far in in employee base. But we're not going to have thousands of people anytime soon. And the reason is that you know we're worried that if we do that, we're not going to have the managerial capacity right. for it. And we're going to see what we see in other exchanges. We're going to grow as fast as we can while maintaining the culture that lets us do what we need to do, uh, but not at the expense of that.
So Sam, obviously FTX has been this huge success, but your success within crypto goes beyond that. You have a hedge fund or a crypto uh, trading fund. You're also a backer of a very rapidly growing layer one platform, Solana. We, you know, in the beginning, I mentioned Bitcoin, Ethereum, which everyone knows. Is the goal of Solana to, to be better than Ethereum? And is the vision that it could replace it and be bigger than it one day? So uh, I'm sort of not, here's what I'll say. I think that there is a really exciting and ambitious goal for Solana that I think doesn't fit Ethereum. Um, and that goal is to be a blockchain platform that could support a billion users, that could potentially support you know 15% of the world's economic activity on it. I'm not saying that will happen, but what I'm saying is that the goal is to build a platform that could do that, mm. so that the technology isn't bounding the growth from, this, from the get-go, and it can get as big as it makes sense to get and hopefully uh, provide a ton of value. And I think that needs a massively scaling blockchain technology. That's what Solana is. That's its founding principle, is its guiding light. And it's done really innovative things to do that. And that's not what Ethereum is. And so, you know, I think, is it is it sort of complementary or, or competitive with Ethereum? I don't know if that depends on what you think, you know, your view of the goal of Ethereum is. And I think that, you know, right. one thing we're seeing is Ethereum being sort of a store of value for some people. And, you know, that's totally fine with me. Like, that's not, um, you know, uh, that that that's, uh, you know, not not sort of contradictory with Solana seeing blockchain growth. I can imagine if there was any regulator listening in right now, they'd go, you want 15 percent of economic value <laughs> to go onto this blockchain called Solana that I don't know about. How are you finding that discussion going when uh, you do you think you'll be allowed to get that to that sort of scale when you've got U.S. thinking about a Fed coin, China trying to promote its own? You know, it's really hard to know. Like, I don't want to try and make, uh, you know, I, I, I have no clue is the real answer there. There's so many variables there. And so instead of thinking of it as like, it is going to get there, because that, that would be an insane thing to, to, to feel confident about. The way I think about it is the upside, the really big upside and where a lot of the expected value is, are cases where you get to at least hundreds of millions of users in DeFi. And what that means when we're thinking about what to do now, given that we're ways away from that, right? Like the number of DeFi users is tiny. It's like 100,000. It's you know smaller than a single centralized exchange. Um, what that means right now is building the technology such that you don't constrain yourselves away from it. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. You know, Certainly, probably it won't reach as big as it could possibly get. Um, but it would be really sad if you just cross that off your list immediately Sam. as hopeless. Sam, when I look at uh, FTX.com, it has all this cool yep. stuff, lumber, prediction markets, and so forth. Yep. When I look at the US kitty version that's like regulated, it's like, oh, you can buy like Bitcoin. Is this like the old poker where it's like you, there's the cool site that Americans can't access? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, yes. Like right now, there, there, there are you know, two sites, two exchanges, two matching engines. One of them has a lot more products than the other. Um, and this is because of, of licensing. You know, this is, and, and I don't want to phrase this as a good and bad thing necessarily. Like, um, but you know, uh, as it is, sort of the U.S. tends to take a uh, licensed approach to everything, which makes sense in a lot of cases. What we find ourselves here is in a situation where there are a number of products that I think are super cool that the U.S. takes a stance they require licensing to offer in the United mm -hmm. States, but hasn't released a clear licensing, uh, you know, regime right. for. And I think that when you look at even crypto futures fall in this category right now, there is no crypto futures exchange license, but the CFT says you need one. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And we also took some time this week to demystify DeFi, decentralized finance, with Tom Schmidt, general partner at Dragonfly Capital, which invests in the space. We started by asking how he thinks about what makes a good project in the space when we don't have the sorts of traditional metrics like we do in established asset classes. I mean, I think that's actually what's cool about DeFi is that, you know, unlike a traditional company where you might not have access to the company financials or there might be fraud or there might be issues with it, with DeFi, all the data, all the activity is actually occurring on chain. So if I want to go and I want to see, you know, let's say something like Compound Finance, for example, they're a decentralized money market, I can go and see how many depositors do they have, how many borrowers do they have, you know, what's their LTV ratio, what kind of assets do they have as collateral. And so you can actually go on chain and see what users are doing with that, with the products that are actually live. And that's a really novel breakthrough that just isn't really possible with a traditional company. Decentralized finance is, of course, what all of this is. And I'm interested why a lot of the biggest companies within crypto that get their names, you know, some of whether it be a Coinbase that's already listed or companies that are looking to raise funding in the crypto space end up doing it the normal way. They get money from private equity mm. or they get money from from VC. Why don't they just do, why doesn't everyone within the crypto sphere just want to make, create their own token, go through it from a de decentralized financial kind of way? Mm. I mean, I think a lot of people saw the issues with sort of, you know, a true free for all when it comes to, uh, you know, capital formation and financing with sort of the 2017 ICO phase. I think a lot of traditional companies still do raise money in the traditional way from venture capitalists like myself, um, you know, such as a BlockFi, which is, you know, one of the larger mm. um, private companies right now. I think what's interesting about, about DeFi is sort of twofold. One, a lot of the financing that does happen is, is pretty small and occurs pretty early in the company's life cycle where uh, you know, VCs or early investors really act as partners to sort of help build. But you don't see those sort of you know, later stage Series B, Series C investments. Traditionally, a company, if they want to issue a token, um, they issue it earlier on and they start giving it away to uh, early users. It's I mean, as if you know, Uber, instead of raising you know, 10 different venture rounds, started giving away Uber stock to early drivers and early riders to incentivize them to you know, help make the product better and to use it. And so, you know, again, these things want to be decentralized. They want to be sort of user controlled. Yeah. And so it doesn't really make sense to you know, take on traditional funding and instead actually have the users who are you know, operating the protocol um, take ownership of it. But I am curious here, Tony, I mean, uh, Tom, excuse me, we talk a lot about the comparisons to the internet, or at least what the internet mm. used to be. But of course, the internet has sort of become concentrated, at least the, the main drivers of it have been now concentrated amongst a few players here. And I'm wondering, is there a risk, given the general structure of what the blockchain is supposed to be and all these sort of ancillary assets, is there a risk that we could see that concentration there? Or is there some sort of buffer that would prevent that? I think certainly these things have really powerful network effects. And that sort of, you know, begets these, these concentrations where, hey, if I'm a borrower, I'm a trader, I want to be where there's liquidity and, and vice versa. And so you get these virtuous cycles, which, which can create these, you know, really big products. I would say, you know, the big difference with something like DeFi, uh, sort of twofold. One, these things, again, are, you know, always transparent, always on. And so you don't have this sort of potential existentic, you know, existential systemic risk that you do with, you know, potentially a large bank, for example. Um, the other interesting thing is that, again, this is all permissionless to build on top of and remix. So um, let's say, you know, a product gets, gets really large and they're doing a really great job. All this code is open source. So I can take it, um, I can change it, I can redeploy it. And so, um, you know, it's a lot more like open source software in that way, um, where if a new better product comes along, anyone can come and, and just deploy right. it and build it and have other people start using it, unlike something like Facebook, which is completely closed source. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And then we wrapped up the week with something outside of crypto, the, the global supply chain. Craig Fuller, the founder and CEO of FreightWaves, the leading provider of data and analytics to the global logistics and supply chain market, came on to talk about the bottlenecks that explain why trucking companies are not honoring their contracts due to such high demand. No, there's, you know, the capacity shortages are going to stay uh, current and persistent at least through the rest of the year. Wow. Uh, it is, uh, we have the potential of seeing some relief uh, as we move into 2022, uh, probably after the first quarter. Uh, but right now, capacity is super tight. The labor market is certainly uh, not helping because it's so tight and it's nearly impossible for trucking companies to find uh, truck drivers to uh, take the jobs that uh, they have available. What about sort of pinch points from within the U.S. And, and externally? I know you're looking globally as well. How much is this purely a U.S. issue or is this something you're seeing absolutely worldwide? No, it's, it's certainly uh, worldwide. Uh, all aspects of freight capacity are at all time lows in terms of availability at a time that demand is really off the charts and unprecedented. So we see it in global shipping. Uh, we see it in uh, the rail markets. We see it in air freight. Uh, and we also see it in trucking. So it's really ubiquitous across all modes of traffic. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that the uh, global economy is played with. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, trucking is 70% of all freight is moved by trucks. So we certainly feel it uh, through that. And we don't have a lot of options for uh, drivers in terms of employment uh, optionality. So a lot of carriers rely on the same pool of truck drivers to pull from. And when you have record demand, they just don't have a, a lot of uh, yeah. choices to, to be able to fill those trucks. So Craig, I mean, we just had on the screen uh, some data here on, on truckload uh, transactions here. I I'm wondering what happens if, if some of these trucking companies, if they actually reject uh, a load. I mean, what happens? Does it just sit in a warehouse? Does it go? I mean, what happens to that uh, to mm. those to those goods? No. So a rejection is basically a contracted load or a load that has a fixed price. So uh, big shippers like a Walmart or Procter and Gamble or, or large scale companies try to every year they do a bid and they try to lock in the uh, trucking prices or rates for the rest of the year. Uh, and so they go through the cycle of locking it in and they get trucking companies to commit to that capacity. Uh, when they send those transactions, they send them basically two days before they are uh, scheduled to pick up. The trucking company has the option to either accept the load uh, and tell the shipper uh, that they will pick up the load or they have the opportunity to reject it. And a rejection is a message that says they're not going to honor uh, that hmm. load request uh, for whatever reason. So it could be that they don't like the, the rate that they had bid on and previously committed to, or it could be, and most likely, do they have better options uh, to do with their capacity. So when we look at a high tender rejection, which we're over 25%, hmm. it means one out of every four truckloads in the United States that's under a contracted rate is being turned down by carriers. They're just refusing to pick up that load. Uh, and it's going then into uh, a, to the second position, and then eventually it ends up in the spot market. And that's where you see uh, high inflation in transportation costs, where the cost between the spot and the contract rate could be as much as double. And that's where a lot of people are talking uh, on social media and just in public about 
uh, having to pay these exorbitant uh, freight rates to get capacity uh, because they're having to buy it in the spot market and not under their contracted rates. Those contracted rates were previously committed to, uh, but they're just not, the trucking companies just aren't honoring it because they have so much demand. So what are the obligations, I mean, the, the sort of contractual or legal obligations? You mentioned these relationships are made and then they're like, nah, you know what, we're, we're, we're not going to do that and you got to pay us a lot more. So what is technically being agreed to in these ostensible agreements? There, it's basically that they agree to a rate, but they're not actually agreeing. They may agree <laughs> to a volume commitment, but it's a commitment. It's not a contracted mm guarantee. So there is no futures market in trucking, and there's really not a forward market in trucking either. So the commitments is just that they have best intent to pick up the load at that rate, but it's no different than your lawn care provider gives you a rate to cut your lawn until summer comes along ah. and he finds that the golf course down the street is paying twice as much and he goes over there. So it's the same thing you get in trucking is that the trucking companies will honor those rates as long as the conditions in the market are stable. But if capacity tightens up and they can get twice or three times as much for the same uh, truck on that particular load, they'll take the higher paying load. Yeah. And that's where you see a lot of supply chain disruptions and breakdowns in the, what we call routing guides uh, where shippers just can't secure capacity. Yeah. So that is what's causing this additional strain on the supply chain is that trucking companies are refusing freight Wow. And uh, shippers just don't have a lot of backup options to deal with. It feels like a great deal if you're in the trucking business right now. But it's a great deal they... right now. But remember, shippers play this game just as well as do the carriers uh -huh. do. So when the market reverts to the other end and capacity soft, shippers will oftentimes not honor their commitments. So when mm. they may have agreed to give a trucking company 10 loads a day, they may end up only giving them one load a day and they'll end up buying capacity in the spot market at a much cheaper level. So it's, it creates a lot of structural issues. Joe and I talked about uh, on uh, on the podcast mm. just how cyclical this yeah. market. Uh, because of the cyclicality, demand is cyclical and so is rate. And for those reasons, it creates a ton of structural issues and eventual bankruptcies in the market. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.